So thank you for sticking it out here to the very end of the conference and for being here. Um, so one thing I, so this is, you've already got the title. So one thing I'll point out to you is that um, I feel a bit an imposter with Dr. Fate being the co-author on this because it really is about a class that she has developed and I am not the only librarian she has worked with. I am the current librarian she's worked with. So I will start with the caveat that if I, if I misrepresent what she is doing with the class, those errors are mine. Um, and so I've put our contact details up there. We're also fairly unique names who so are fairly Googleable, and we're both at Texas A&M. And so we're gonna talk about integrating subject expertise. So she is a veterinary pharmacologist and library expertise. And I've been working in veterinary information since 2001, so I'm becoming sort of one of the old timers in it with the retirements that we're having. And we're gonna talk specifically about a pharmacology class that I work with with her. To put it into context, um, this is most relevant from the local standpoint of Texas A&M where we are, so I wanna tell you what the climate is there with teaching competencies and how we've set this. So I've been at Texas A&M since 2013. Um, as Marnie mentioned, I've got a joint appointment. Um, you know, it's a courtesy one. The vet school doesn't pay me anything. But I'm one of the few librarians who has a joint or an adjunct. And it's something that if you can advocate for your librarian back at your home institutions, those of you that are um, in academics, it does give us um, kind of a different window into what it is that you're doing within the education in the college. Um, some of the practical things it does, it provides me with um, a lot of information through email that I wouldn't have otherwise, and a lot of opportunities, one of which is I do sit on the veterinary curriculum committee as an ex officio member. So the veterinary curriculum belongs to the college, so I'm not a voting member, but by attending the curriculum committee meetings, I'm much more informed about what the classes are doing. I can um, make much more intelligent selected offers to people about where I might be able to help with assignments. I can see trends and lines through the curriculum. And so when I got there in 2013, the curriculum committee for the veterinary professional program had already begun a process of evaluating the curriculum. Um, they were having a lot of retreats, meetings, deciding what was working, what wasn't. And we had a list of competencies that the students needed to have um, checked off by their veterinary professors by the time they left. And 2014 was the first year that if you didn't have those competencies checked off, you didn't get a diploma when you walked across the stage. So when I got there, this was the competency for essentially the information world that existed. And there, I mean, they sort of spawned, which is why we did some later curriculum development. There were about 300 competencies at this time. And so the critical analysis of information was defined by um, you would improve your scientific literacy by reading and interpreting information from research papers. The 40 there parenthetically meant that throughout the curriculum that they were there, the four years, they needed to have done this with 40 papers to be able to have it ticked off. And it was self-reported. These could be papers that were part of classwork, part of rounds, and whatever else. So it's not a particularly robust competency, but at least it was there. In 2015, Dr. Fate, who is also on the curriculum committee, um, and I, among some other changes that were being made, we proposed the, this change to it, and it was accepted. So it became a shorter competency, critical analysis of information. And so we asked that they be able to do these things five times. 
So you begin to see the creep toward EBBM here with a lot of those words. And, and we definitely, we're, 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 you're going to see some EBVM creep. So this was the 2015 competency. By 2015, the curriculum committee, we were undergoing a full curriculum analysis. And so we have now mapped all of our syllabi to new graduate outcomes. We've mapped every question. We use ExamSoft, so computer-based um, exams. We've mapped the questions to the competencies uh, it's a homegrown system that our programmers developed. And in 2016, we unveiled our new graduate outcomes. There was a commentary in JAVMA. At the URL at the bottom of the screen, if you haven't seen them and you'd like a copy of them, that's where you can get them. The JAVMA citation is also there. Within the commentary in JAVMA, one or two of the competencies were used as examples, so the URL would get you all of them. Something that was pointed out to me at this conference that's interesting that I haven't thought about is, when you look at these against the ABMA competencies, they, they look much broader and almost like we're emphasizing some things that aren't there and it's because we took the ABMA competencies, we said how we're gonna map to them and then we added competencies for items that were important to us locally at A&M. And so a lot of that is more of the professional development type things. So this is the new graduate outcome now that's part of the current. And so you can see now with recognizing the importance of EBBM, not just some of the steps being there, we've gone to complete EBBM creep. Um, we still, as with the 2015s, are saying that we want people to specifically be able to search Cab Abstracts through one of its formats and PubMed by the time they leave. We want them to be able to integrate the new knowledge in. And so this is the local environment that we're working with now. And in fact, right now, um, they're due the 15th of November. We are beginning to propose new classes and the people who come into the school next August will actually be the first year of a new curriculum. Um, so that was what was going on locally. What's going on nationally? There was a survey, some of you may have been invited to take part, some of you may have, of AVMA schools. It came out of A&M. The team was Dr. Fate and four librarians, one of whom was at A&M. And so the survey was about teaching evidence-based veterinary medicine. It went through IRB at Texas A&M, and it went through the AAVMC's survey committee. The survey was sent to AAVMC, who distributed it to the AVMA-accredited schools for them to distribute locally. The idea being you would be more likely to answer a survey that came from your own internal administrators than one that you saw from somebody at another school that you didn't know. So the, it is now out ahead of print. Um, it will be in JVME. So the questions, what skills are being taught in the curriculum? How involved are your librarians and how are they taught? 106 respondents, so not a very high respondent rate when you think about the number of veterinary faculty and librarians at AVMA schools, but 22 institutions, so a fair number of institutions. And they determined that it had enough of a a statistical significance that it was worth running and publishing, but the key findings were no, no standard teaching methodology for EBVM at all within the curriculum. No standard learning activities were reported, and librarians, I, I, loved, I took their phrasing, appeared to be an underutilized resource. And I like that phrase for a lot of reasons, because it points out that we are a resource that many of the veterinary faculty and practitioners don't take advantage of. We're, we're essentially another free faculty member or staff member for you. 
We can help you with creating assignments that are appropriate. It doesn't necessarily have to be FaceTime in your classes. The major barriers to teaching EBM within the classrooms aren't surprising. Well, at least the top one isn't. The perceived lack of time in an overcrowded curriculum. We're all complaining about that. But also the lack of high quality evidence and the lack of point of care tools. Well, I'll agree with people that there's a lack of point of care tools compared to the human medicine world. We don't have a lot that we can teach you to pull out your smartphone and use while you're standing on a clinic floor. But we'd argue that there, are some, there is some high quality evidence and there are some other tools even if they aren't point of care. So we wonder if perhaps some of that is an awareness that needs to be raised. Suggestions for overcoming the barriers were using, and I would say promoting, the growing number of EBBM tools that are available online and collaborating with librarians, but also at your home institutions, look at creating competencies that are more explicitly EBBM related, and then at the state, at the national, at the accrediting level, look at trying to promote EBVM being part of the language of the competencies. If you look at AVMA's competencies, AVMA will say that they support medicine that's based in evidence, but then look at the academic competencies that they ask us to meet as accredited schools, the language isn't particularly evidence-based. So, in the abstract, we promised to tell you a little bit about the learning theory that we're using with this particular pharmacology class and with our collaboration. And I decided to, so I'm gonna talk about two articles, but what I wanted to do here was step out of this presentation and get on my soapbox, minimally, about author names, okay? We've got two articles by the same team of people. I took the citations both out of PubMed and they're both really recent, 2015, 2016. In the titles of both of them, the second author is Ollie Tenkate. But look at the citations below. In one case, PubMed picked up that it was O. Tenkate. And in the other case, O. T. Kate. So, in an author search, you're not gonna find both of these even though they're in the same journal published you know, two years in a row. And so this is why I'm going to give you my 15 second advertisement for using something like ORCID IDs to be able to gather all of the articles together for your researchers under one name and one ID. And often people will say that ORCIDs aren't needed if their name is somewhat unique. You know, if, you're, if you don't have a common name, why would, why would you need an ORCID? I would argue that Ali Tenkate is probably not a common name. And here we still have an author disambiguation process. So I'll get off of that soapbox and go back to this. Thank you for indulging me. So in the first of the two articles, this was about designing EBM tools, and this was in the human curriculum. This was out of academic medicine. And what they did and what we do is really look at the four CID model, so four components of instructional design. And it's predicated very much on looking at a whole task, but practicing and mastering it in pieces. And by looking at the whole task always, we're providing the context. And one of the things that changes across looking at that whole task is how much support you give someone. And so as a first year veterinary student, we will give them not only more resources that they can use as references, so things like um, if you're looking at the EBVM learning guide, there are a lot of places that 
you can pull out and see specific information about how to search a database, the specific lists of how to wildcard and truncate, you're not going to memorize those, and as a librarian, neither am I. But they're there as a reference. So you've got the standard references to say there, but the other support that you give someone as they're learning the task should decrease as you go from the early years into the um, later years. The second of the articles, they were looking at the challenges to overcome EBM in the human curriculum. They look pretty similar. We've talked about some of these at this conference though. Suboptimal role modeling, not seeing where it is in clinical context. There have been a couple of presentations where people have talked about trying to implement more EBVM within a curriculum and it's required upskilling of some of the clinicians, buy-in from the clinicians, you know, it's not something that you can do in a vacuum on your own and only within one or two subject areas. So they're finding sort of the same things in human medicine. The student's lack of willingness to admit uncertainty I find particularly egregious whenever it comes to library or searching skills because everyone is sure that they know what they're doing because they search in their own worlds. They're really not going to admit to you or to me that they don't know. And when you think about it, they do know how to search and they do know how to appraise, but not in the academic sense that we're asking them to here. And I think it's a fine distinction. If we want to go out to dinner, we know we're, we're going to search probably online, figure out where they do this in their daily lives, and they're going to do some critical appraisal. They know which apps they like best. They know where they want to search. Do they want to use a Google search? Do they want to use a Bing search? Do they want to go to a specific search like Yelp? Well, there's more than one restaurant review and identification service, so you've already done some critical appraisal. I like Yelp better than something else. And what we need to do is begin to translate that into the academic side to say, we understand that you know how to do some searching and some appraisal, but we don't want you to practice Dr. Google medicine. Their lack of willingness um, to discuss that with us I'm not sure if it's conscious. I mean, they, they, they understand that they know how to do it. They don't see the fine distinction between searching for that sort of thing and searching um, for evidence for practice. So what are we doing in this specific class? So this is a second year class. So four year curriculum in the US. So they've been there one year already, half of a second. And it's not only the spring semester, it's the second semester of pharmacology. So they've already had one more pure semester of pharmacology before this. Of the course objectives, one of them specifically addresses EBVM. And so it is to use the principles of EBVM to make defensible clinical decisions about drug use. So it's not just going through the five steps and getting you know, to apply and we'll do something academic. We're asking them by the end of this class in the assignments that they turn in that are summative to say, based on my knowledge at this point in my career and the PICO that I wrote and the evidence that I found and I appraised, it's strong or weak evidence and this is the recommendation I would make based on it. It's uncomfortable for the students. You know, I mean, it is low risk. We don't have any clients. We're talking about a classroom. But we're actually asking them by the end of this, to be able to make a defensible clinical decision based on what they've found. And we go through the four steps. So people often ask, well, you know, do you have the luxury of time with teaching this? Right now in the curriculum we do, and we'll be teaching this two more times before the curriculum changes, 
So Monday is a lab session, four hours, and the class is large enough that it's split, so it's actually the students, we have them for two hours on Monday. Tuesday and Thursday are each lectures. So there's a lecture for EBBM the second week, and then we go to mostly having it in the two-hour lab. One of the changes, because this continues to evolve, so I was part of this class in 2014, 2015. In 2016, I began attending the lectures. And I would argue that that's actually a really valuable thing for a librarian to do. It's fine for me, it's um, EBBM searching for evidence step two is the class that I lead. And I can certainly lead it without attending the first lecture because I know pretty much what they've been told. You know, it's the same stuff the instructor usually does. I know pretty much what I'm supposed to do. But when I'm in the lecture and I hear what the instructor is saying and I hear the way that they're saying it and I see the interactions, the body language and everything else of the students, it improves my class because I can say to them when there's a question, remember last week, this is what Dr. Fate said about this. And it's, rel it's exactly what they heard the week before instead of my having to say something more general. Um, I can get a feel from being in that audience. Do they seem comfortable? Do they seem uncomfortable? Do they see bored? seem bored? And I didn't last year stay up at the front of the room where Dr. Fate was lecturing because it is you know, a lecture theater. I went and sat in the audience with them. And I wasn't there to see who's in Facebook and who's in something else. I sort of wanted to see, because I don't usually sit in the lecture. Okay, what are they doing? And you can tell a tremendous amount from the body language, from the notes they're passing forth, back and forth. Um, and so what she does in the lecture is lectures, and then even though we're in a lecture hall, pairs them up and has them work on the beginnings of their first PICO from a scenario she's given them, and then report back in the lecture setting. And so it's actually really tremendously good eavesdropping while they're working on this stuff. And I did change up my lecture some based on what I heard. So then I get them for two hours in the lab, and that is a bit of a goat rodeo, we would say, in the US. Because I've got 134 students, and we've already broken the lab, like I said, into two sections, because we we've only got one place we can meet with 134. So now we've got two two-hour sections of 60-some. I teach a hand-on computer lab. We don't have one with that many computers. So we split it again, and I get another librarian to use my materials. And we teach it simultaneously in two labs in two different buildings, not even on the same side of the street. And Dr. Fate gets her steps in that day because she goes back and forth between the two in case either of us has any problems or the students do. Because once I go through the basic searching with them, and we usually do a mini lecture about searching, a mini lecture about PubMed, a mini lecture about Cab Abstracts, once they start searching, they quickly exceed my pharmacologic knowledge. And so often we need her to come in and redirect a little bit. And then for steps three and four, we're back in a lecture hall of 64. I've begun to attend those. And it's nice to have me there as a resource, but again, I'm hearing exactly what the students are asking, what they're hearing. And then weeks six, seven, and eight are open labs. So time to come in and work. We've added those fairly recently. Two of them, week seven and week eight, are I open a computer lab for four hours. And, I tell, and we tell them, I'm going to be there whether or not you come in. It's up to you. So the first year we did it, which was 2015, a couple people came in, a couple people emailed. Well, you know the students, they talk among themselves. 
must have been useful because the next year many more of them did. And when they come in, it's a real variety. Some people come in and say, I, I don't need your help, I'm just using this time to do my homework, but you're gonna be here, right? And they work. Some people come in and say, I think I know what I'm doing, could you look at this first for me? Sure, absolutely. And some people come in and they look around and they say, Dr. Fate's not here, right? And I say, no. no. Do, do you report back to her who comes in and who asks what? No. Okay, great, I am completely lost, please help me. And they'll actually admit that to me where they won't to her because something I've noticed across the years I've done this, for those of you who are in academe, the vet students have a really, I believe, overinflated idea of how much you can mess with their lives and careers. They're afraid to tell you they don't know something that they think they should. So they'll sort of come around and ask me some of this. And we do talk in an anonymized sense about how are the students doing. But I don't tell her, Joe asked me this and Sue asked me this. So I'm finding that I end up doing a lot of sort of one-on-one -on -one tutorials that people have come back now two years later and said, changed my world, that's what I needed, and I didn't know who or how to ask it. So that's not really scalable, but at least we're providing the opportunity. So what she does in terms of assignments, she's begun to require a reflective writing assignment, and it's a little one, and we don't do reflective writing a lot in the US, 200 words, and then they're turning in PICO questions every week for a few weeks, and then they have their final assignments, which are what they're coming in and working in the labs on. So the weekly reflections, really what she wants them to do is demonstrate some well-formed thoughts. Sometimes she'll give them something to read and writing prompts. And sometimes, as in the case of the week that we do the searching lab, the prompt she gave them was, whether it was something you learned on your own or something you learned from one of the two librarians, what did you learn that was helpful about searching this week? She anonymized those and at the end of the semester allowed me to see them and I gotta tell you it was more informative than any evaluation we've ever handed out to a class. I also think they probably didn't know I was going to see them. Um, but it, it, and it will change what I teach this year because I'm seeing what they learned elsewhere. I'm seeing what it is that they said it was, that was useful and in some senses it's the really basic stuff. It will just terrify you. you know? And in some senses, what they said was the most useful was on the more advanced end of what we teach, even though we're trying not to overwhelm them. So it, it's an interesting snapshot. Um, this is the rubric of how she grades the reflections. So really, if people are representing accurate content, drawing a conclusion based on it, being aware and thinking, they, they do okay on this. So in the first of the lectures that she does, the one that I go and eavesdrop in, it's about formulating questions. And this is what she has in her syllabus. You know, one way to, do, one way to be able to guide your question will be to formulate a clinical query. She gives them a basic PICO, question, basic PICO table, nothing we haven't seen already at this conference. You know, steps can be built this way. And then this is the rubric for all of the grade that she does on the PICO questions. So remember that first teaching objective was you needed to be able to have a defensible clinical decision. Okay, you're gonna get an excellent if your PICO is specific, complete, and is clinically relevant. 
So from the very first Pico, she's hitting them with the, you're thinking about this for practice. That was bad. Um, the next one, locating the best evidence. So this is the class that I work with. And so what they need to turn in is keywords, how they were combined, and the list of the literature. They don't actually go and pull the articles yet. So the description of it, so they tell her what PICO they're trying to answer. They bring their PICOs to the lab with me, describe the search strategy, and in what I thought was sort of an interesting twist, she allows them to give her screenshots so she can see what it is that's going on. One of the changes we're probably gonna make in 2017 and 18 is I'll begin working with her on this because when you see the rubric, an excellent search strategy, a PICO, it's not as refined because when you think about the fact that 134 people are turning this in, sometimes with, when I've seen them, sometimes 10 pages of screenshots, there's not a lot of fine formative grading going on here. And so we're trying to decide how much help I may be able to be here. We, as I said, we do this now out of the lab, the groups of 64. Sometimes they have a reading before class. Then they critically appraise one article that we've given them to form a PICO. So what I'm going to do is give you the handout. Um, Dr. Fate put Creative Commons on it so that it can be shared, it can be used. I believe she put an attribute on it. And so what you're getting is what we give them in class. And if you go back a page or a couple pages, you'll see there's a literature evaluation form where, that they fill out. And so instead of it being a scoring sheet where it's numbers and your evidence is a 15, your evidence is a 6, a 15 is strong, a 6 is weak, it's more qualitative than that. So there are some questions for each of the study types. There's a grid for them to be able to try to see what may be weaker or stronger evidence. And so this is the first of the classes that we introduced this handout in. And they continue to use it. And she's very open about the fact that this is drawn and adapted from many people's work. All of them are cited there at the bottom of the page. So as we're looking at critical appraisal, so using the form that you have, you're going to get an excellent, you have to have typed your article correctly. Well, after listening to Annette O'Connor's talk about article classification, this rubric now terrifies me. <laughs> Um, and then did you answer the quality questions fairly appropriately? The next week we hit them with the instruction about making that clinically relevant decision. So integrating your appraisal. So the lecture is about the final step in the practice and what they're going to need to do is say they have a strong recommendation, a weak recommendation, or none. So the assignment is to answer a clinical question. And so they've been writing PICOs, they've been gathering articles. In class, we give them one to do. And then by the time they're writing their own and they're coming to the labs, this is what they're having to do for their assignments that they handed that are formative later. But this is getting pretty tough. So the successful assignment here, we have to have your PICO. The citation for the evidence that you're saying, you're answering your PICO with. The assessment of the article you appraise. 
the answer to your clinical question based on your evidence and your strength of your recommendation to your pretend clinical client and your choice is strong or weak. You don't get a middle ground when it comes to that recommendation. Yes, no, strong, weak. So I said, this makes them uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. And this is the rubric that she uses for it. So you get excellent if you've completely described how that article and your appraisal helped you answer the question. And it also includes the question of the citation. So that's actually pretty stringent. You're asking them to tell you how did that work. So the future of it, as I said, we're in the midst of now reevaluating and redesigning our curriculum. So this particular 2VM class goes away in 2018. So we'll do it in 2017, we'll do it in 2018, and then this information will be absorbed into a different class, one that's more epidemiology and public health, but we're gonna continue to see what we can do with evolving this class over these next two sessions. And then we'll apply that, hopefully, to what we're doing with the next class. We've also got a challenge in that there may be some pretty significant changes to our physical facilities. We just opened a new veterinary education complex with three new buildings. So the students actually don't very easily have our former sort of poor solution of two 30-person labs across the street from each other because they're not here anymore. Now they're over here. So I'm not sure what we're teaching it in January. Uh, it might be two labs in the same building. But again, we don't have a 60-some person lab, so I'll split it with another librarian. Um, then we also, in the abstract, promised to talk to you about the other place that she teaches, and here I am not involved, and that's in our fourth-year clinical rotations. So in the fourth-year clinical rotations, she works with the dermatology rotation, and she works with the food animal rotation. They have the same learning objective, which is by evaluating two papers and making a clinical recommendation, you fulfill one of these new graduate outcomes, the one I showed you at the beginning. So you're gonna improve your ability to integrate EBM into your daily practice, and you're gonna improve your ability to find the evidence that you need to make clinical decision. So what she does in both rotations, she has them review a piece, they write a clinical question of their own, and it has to do with, in one case, food animal drugs or therapeutics, and the other dermatology, I copied this out of the food animal. Then what she does is she searches for them and provides two articles for them. So these are fairly small rotations. This would not be scalable to all 134. So they're working in a pair, and she's doing that. So she sends them the PDFs, if she can't figure out what she needs to do, they have to provide a better PICO. And then they critically appraise the papers as a team. They use the form that you have to answer the clinical question, and they write a short report. They present it as a round, they get an hour, uh, to the classmates and faculty. But then after it, they each have to turn in their own assignment. So how is it graded? 15% on the clinical question that she asked them to formulate to begin with. So I'm not sure if they have to resubmit something if they lose points there, but they're getting 15% for the clinical question. So is it highly relevant? Does it take into consideration everything it needs to for a therapeutic? And then 85% of it is the report that they're handing in as an individual. 
So, did you accurately describe the study type? Again, Dr. O'Connor's talk has me really nervous about that one. Did you assess it? Did you provide a brief description for the reason of it? Did you come up with a reasonable answer to that clinical question? And how was that clinical recommendation that you made? Did, were you headed in the right direction? Did you interpret everything wrong? And then the defensible part of your recommendation is the last part of it. So, I wanted to leave time for a couple of questions that I have for you, and then also for um, any that you have for us. And this is the front of our very shiny new building, which actually still didn't look like that when I left because um, they were still finishing some stuff. So this is the original architect's recommendation. So one of the questions we have for you, since I have the mic, I'll ask mine first. You have the therapeutics form in the handout that we gave to you. It is specifically for therapeutics. One of the things we're interested in is whether or not people would like to do something like this for other specialties. And this seemed like a pretty focused, pretty good audience to, it's not necessarily an answer for here in the room, but to get you thinking about whether or not something like this, and then whether or not, you know, we've already created Commons this, so definitely something that would be openly available. If something like this needs to be modified further, if taking something like this and then applying it to other disciplines would be useful. That's sort of our thinking question to you.